Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Okay, Houston, we've had a problem here. This is Houston, say again, please. Uh, Houston, we've had a problem. Welcome to Space Junk. My name is Annie Hanmer, and I study international space cooperation and strategic space diplomacy at the University of Sydney, Australia. Some of you may remember Ben Piggott from the IAC episode. Ben is a naval officer, and finding myself in Canberra recently, I decided to impose on him at fairly short notice to talk more about his area of expertise, space security. As usual, we found ourselves deep in conversation well before I hit record, so please forgive any errant references to previous parts of the conversation. It's been a phenomenal year for space in Australia and internationally. Since Ben and I recorded this podcast, Virgin Galactic made it to space, NASA's InSight landed on Mars, and the Australian Space Agency found a permanent home in Adelaide. We look forward to seeing what the team at the agency can achieve in 2019. I'll be back in the new year with more space junk, but in the meantime, happy holidays. I'm here with Ben Piggott, uh, talking about all things to do with space and particularly Ben's interest and my shared interest in space security. Ben, would you like to tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Hi Annie, it's good to be back. Um, so I am a naval officer uh, in, my, in my professional life. Um, I've just finished a master's degree in space operations at the University of New South Wales in Canberra. And I'm, I'm involved in a, in a few sort of different space things. So the Space Generation Advisory Council um, is something we're involved in and the Institute for Regional Security where we've just hosted a conference on uh, on space security in Australia. So yeah, as you said, it's a sort of little bit of a shared area of interest and I, I hope I can, I can contribute something. For sure, I'm sure you can. Ben, you spend a lot of time um, on submarines as part of your job. I've spent some time on submarines. More than most. I guess, yeah, that's true. What was it like? Um, cramped mostly. Uh, What's interesting about submarines is that they are similar to how you think about space, right? Mm. So you're living in close quarters with a lot of people and you're managing a lot of equipment that's quite technical. 
um, and you, you have to employ that equipment and those people to achieve some, some operational outcomes. So I guess there's some similar ways you can think about things in space and things in submarines from, from that point of view. And I guess that's why those two areas are, are interesting to me, right? Is because I, I think I'm probably a bit of an extrovert, so I, I, like, I like being around people. And I, I maybe I'm a bit of a nerd as well, so it's interesting to combine those two things. And th- this is why we go to places like Germany to, to go to these great conferences, right? To, to hang out with people and, um, and learn some new stuff about the really technical stuff that's going on in space, both in terms of equipment and in terms of the law. Did you see the movie First Man? I haven't yet. I, uh, I got a voucher from the university to go and see it, but I haven't, uh, haven't made it to the cinema yet. Can I recommend you save yourself the time? Really? No. That's two hours you will never get back. Bugger. It was not good. But the bit that annoyed me the most about that film was that there was a period of like a few days when you had three astronauts in a small rocket going to the moon. And they just skipped over that bit entirely. Mm -hmm. And I was really interested in that bit because I think it's quite fascinating to think what happens to people when you put them in a place where them cooperating with each other is essential to their collective survival. And they might not necessarily have that much in common or like each other that much, but they have to get along um, because mutiny is not an option. Right. Not when there's only three of you. How many people do you need for a mutiny? Uh, oh, good question. Surely there's a technical definition. There probably, if there is, I don't know what it is. Okay, that's fine. But in terms of submarines, was that something that you ever felt? Mutinous? No, never. No, no, not mutinous. <laughs> I yeah, hope not. No, it's, uh, it's an interesting parallel to draw there. And I guess you can, you can expand that out a bit more broadly. So one of, uh, one of Dolman's other books he talks about what a space society might look like um, and how we should imagine that and how that influences how we think about space power. And some of the, some of the themes in there really resonated with me in, a, uh, in terms of how they ap- apply also to submarines. So you might predict that a space society might be a fairly strong meritocracy um, and where people's sort of contribution to the society has a lot to do with, um, with their status. Because everyone's so dependent on each other for, for their collective survival, I think that, that sort of makes sense. And you, you see that in practice in submarines. They're very meritocratic and people's social standing is, is very much determined by, by their contribution to the, to the enterprise of driving the submarine around um, and, to the, and their contribution to the social cohesion of the crew. Mm, um, mm-hmm. And those are the two things that um, that really, really drive what your what your social standing is in in the boat. How many people are normally on a submarine? Sixty men, women, yep. young, old. Um, mostly men. Um, I'd say it's somewhere between ten and twenty percent female, mm-hmm. and generally relatively young. So okay. mo- mostly people in their twenties. Right. So what's it like being in a crew of young people? Are the people in charge also young? Uh, generally less young. So the, the senior people are generally in their 30s and 40s. Uh, but yeah, you sort of, it's, that's a little bit more variable. Mm-hmm. Um, but the majority of the crew is in their 20s. Okay. Um, and, I, and that's, I guess, just a function of, of what you're there to do, right? You have a lot more training than your counterparts on surface ships. 
but you're you know you're not you're not getting a PhD to to go and do it. When you're selecting crews, do they select people on the basis of their personalities to ensure <laughs> no, that everyone's going to get along? You go where you're told. Right, but um, like when you when you get recruited, there's yep. um, some personality and, and sort of psychological stuff that uh, that you go through, um, but sort of that's the that's the extent of it. You made it through, so. What do you mean? <laughs> Whatever you want me to mean. Um, so last time we spoke um, on this podcast was at IAC, International Astronautical Congress, which was in Bremen. And if people listened to that episode, we had a quick chat about things to do with space security. From memory, we talked a little bit about surveillance, a little bit about ASAT capability, yep. anti-satellite weaponry, and a bit about space debris, I think. Mm -hmm. And we also sort of talked in broad terms about what Australia was doing with their space agency and, and that sort of thing at the conference. Very broad terms, yeah. Yeah, just sort of observations about that which I found very interesting. And a couple of listeners got in touch with me and said that they thought it was very interesting. So I found myself in Canberra and I've imposed myself on you. Not at all. To tell us more about it. Okay. So, security. I suppose the way we think of space is that it is, it's not a domain that humans act in exclusively. It has links to what we do on the ground and at sea and in the air. And the way we think about it is, I guess, being a supporting domain to how we think of security more broadly. Does that make sense? Yeah, would you say that as a domain, space is more similar to cyber than it is an air force or something like that? Absolutely, yeah. Especially for a country like Australia where we don't have that many physical assets in space and we depend on our allies for a lot of things or, or commercial entities you can to a certain degree abstract it as an information domain like cyber and depending on what your physical footprint is there that can influence whether you think of it more as a as a physical domain like the air or if it slides on the spectrum closer towards an information domain like cyber and i, I think that unpacking that is pretty interesting especially for a country like australia and as you mentioned australia doesn't have a lot of our own infrastructure there so being reliant on other countries to provide access to things, like information is really what we're talking about, is quite vital for Australia's national security. And perhaps that's something that people, I think I find people aren't quite aware of. So with space, the information comes from that place, has to be processed, turned into something useful. That's right. Um, and then shared through information channels to whoever has access to it. And the sorts of capabilities that we know exist would be things like imaging, um, so things like surveillance of stuff going on on Earth, and that's as simple as your Google Earth up to something far more sophisticated and accurate. You can do various other ways of imaging to see what's going on, so um, like heat, for example, you yep. can look at levels of heat, and that's useful for things like bushfires. For sure, yeah. Um, and I mean, yeah. Google Earth's pretty good now, like there's so GOI has a satellite that um, that does imagery down to, I think, 46 centimetre ground resolution, which is, is pretty good. So basically what that means is when you're looking at a picture on your computer screen, the image is made up of millions of pixels. Mm -hmm. Every pixel in that image represents about a 46 centimetre square on the ground. So all of the light that's being reflected off the earth in that 46 centimetre square 
the average of that light is what's in that pixel. Okay. So could you see a person and identify them at 46 centimeters? Probably no, not. No, you couldn't. No, because uh, you think of like a, the size of a person's head is sort of... Yep, so they're going to be just a splodge. That's right. So that's, that's maybe 20 centimeters. 46 centimeters, you can resolve things like cars. Mm -hmm. In a security context, if someone's got, for example, a fleet of ships or something heading your way, it's useful to be able to see that there's something moving. That's right. You sort of start being able to resolve the details of, and maybe able to identify what class of ship that is. And mm -hmm. um, you can start doing things like that. And it's sort of part of this broader trend that we see in commercial space imagery where uh, technology gets better and better. Um, and this is, this is just available to anyone with a credit card, right? Or, or mm. for free. So the direction that goes in as imagery becomes more and more ubiquitous is really interesting from a security point of view. Because what, you know, 10 years ago would have been the exclusive and, and very highly classified domain of governments is now available to, to anyone, really. So if that trend shows no sign of not continuing, what that does to the information environment that we're in from a national security perspective will be quite interesting, I think. I was really interested in this when I was over in Germany, um, just before IAC, I was in Berlin for a couple of days and I visited the Berlin Espionage Museum. Or the I wanted to go there when I was there, I ran Museum. out of time. It was so interesting because they had a lot of just stuff on display, which is great. It's what you want from your museum. You mm -hmm. don't want anything to be too curated. You just want stuff in cabinets. Okay. Um, well, I do. And they had a lot of old technologies that were used during the Cold War by spies. Yeah. And there were things like small cameras mounted in matchboxes and things like that. Gadgets, the sort of gadgets that you see in old James Bond movies. And this stuff would have been so expensive to create. Now, we all carry that capability around with us in our pockets on our phones exactly, constantly. Yeah. And it's so much better. The resolution, all of that is so much better than these microfilm cameras. I think it's really interesting to think of the way that development in technology is often driven by war and by the need to have better tech than the other side. But then after that war, or at some point, that tech becomes integrated into civilian use. And then you end up with this kind of what they might call a democratization of what, as you say, used to be highly classified information. When sophisticated countries think about developing capability for national security, this is a consideration. What is the time frame? Because it's inevitable. What's the time frame between developing this technology for national security use? And when do we expect that that technology will hit the commercial mainstream? Mm. So for, for countries like the United States, that's, um, that's a part of the planning. And there's also a question around when does focus shift from developing the better technology to being able to work with the massive amounts of data that are coming out all the time in such a way that it's more effective than what anyone else can do. Like working with big data and slicing all that information in a way that's more effective than someone else may mean that you're able to um, have far better intelligence than, a diff than another country. And it's not because you've got different tech, it's just because you've got different methodologies. So is that also something you would consider useful in relation to space? Absolutely, yeah. That's a really, really good question. Um, and I think what sometimes gets lost, especially when you're talking about space, because there's so much cool stuff you can talk about in space. But as you touched on before, if you abstract it as an information domain, 
information is different to data because we can, we can collect data all day long, but we have to analyze it and turn it into information. And the only reason you have information is so that you can make decisions about what to do. So the path from something being sensor data to being information that a decision maker can actually use to do something is a really important part of the chain. And it's something that is not as interesting or sexy as watching a rocket launch. But it's when we're thinking about security and policy, uh, we need to be thinking about how this is really a, a tool for decision makers. And the, the fact that it came from space is to the decision maker is irrelevant. The prime minister doesn't care that this information came from space. Like we care that, that it's good information. Yeah, and it's and exactly it's the same in a civil sense. If you're trying to use the GPS function on your phone to figure out where you're meeting someone for coffee, you don't care about the fact that this is happening in space and you're not looking at your phone being like, wow, that's so cool. You're sitting there saying, why isn't this updating like it's being slow today and that's annoying me? Absolutely, yeah. And and we actually don't care that it's from space because a lot of how our phones do positioning is GPS assisted by things like commercial Wi-Fi maps and things that are not actually GPS-derived information, like it, because GPS is actually quite battery-intensive for a phone. So, you know, companies that make phones have other ways of doing this mapping. So Google has a map of, of uh, commercial Wi-Fi hotspots around the world, and if you're inside in a shopping centre, this is how your phone still shows you where you are in the shopping centre, despite there being a roof over your head, which would mean you, you can't get a GPS signal. That's a great example. We're agnostic to where the information comes from, and it's only sometimes coming from space. Do you feel that, as a general rule, Australians are aware of national security issues? My answer is a little bit biased because I live in Canberra. Uh, so all of, my, all of my friends I've met through the national security sector, so maybe my answer is a bit biased. But I would like to think that we have the luxury in this country of being able to keep security questions a little bit at arm's length, unless, it's, unless that's your sort of professional direction. But I, I don't know if I can answer that question with a lot of intellectual rigour. Well, we're all functions of the groups of people that we spend time with. So yeah. a guy called Ludwig Fleck wrote a lot about this in terms of what he called thought collectives, which is that you develop ways of thinking and languages and ways of doing things as part of intellectual groupings. And if you get two thought collectives and you put them next to each other, they may not even be able to have a proper debate about something because everything that their beliefs are based on may be completely incommensurable. That's fascinating. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting concept. And Fleck was writing about this in the 30s, I think. And his work on thought collectives was, is brilliant, but got lost and only recently kind of got rediscovered, if you can call it that. Um, of course, it was always there, but people chose to pick it up and read it. But people like Thomas Kuhn, who talked about paradigms and paradigm shifts, mm -hmm. We're talking about very similar things, but with a lot less nuance to them. Um, so I think when it comes to issues like this, things like thought collectives are very useful for understanding why within a city you can have groups of people who think completely differently about particular issues. And when it comes to things like national security, that's actually incredibly relevant because if you're trying to persuade the general public who are paying their taxes that you should be spending their tax money on some whiz-bang new space tech that's going to give us better information, 
if they're not aware of the reasons why you need to do that, because it's classified, then they need to have a general sense that that's a valuable thing. Sure, yeah. And and that may not be the case, depending on where you live. So in Canberra, perhaps people would think that way, but in other parts of Australia, very much not. So I think it's interesting the way that discourse around space in Australia at the moment is very much straying away from national security and running the kind of space is cool and awesome and such an opportunity for entrepreneurs line. Absolutely, yeah. And it absolutely makes sense for the for the space agency to to drive the conversation that way because that's their um that's their remit it's hard to have a national security conversation about space you can do it but yeah it's it's i guess it's not the the dominant narrative at the moment and i but i think that's a good thing it's one of the good things about living in australia is we're you know on a broad level people don't have to think about their national security every day that's national security done right (laughs) ben i've got you here and so i'm going to ask you In terms of national security in Australia that's driven by space, what are we currently doing? Sure. I don't really want to, I don't want to say that our national security is driven by space. I think what we do in space is driven by our national security requirements. I just, I think it's important to get that the right way around. Because as I said before, at the moment we don't exist in space. So it's kind of a supporting domain to to other activities. Mm-hmm. But but that aside, one of the biggest things we do is is contributing to space situational awareness, which is basically looking at and using sensors to detect and characterise the orbits of objects in space. Okay. Part of a, a network of sensors around the world is um, is something that Australia contributes to. So we contribute both uh, sensor capacity and a little bit of analysis to that. We have an agreement with the United States that was signed during the OSMIN meetings in, I think it was 2010. So that's a series of meetings between the defence and foreign ministers of, of Australia and the United States. Um, so that's one of, our, one of our major contributions. Australia more broadly sort of does uh, some interesting research. So up at Mount Stromlo, the ANU has a, has a laser um, that they're looking at uh, using to ablate uh, space debris to, um, to deorbit it, basically. So there's some really interesting research going on in that sort of, in that direction. So how does that work? You've got a big laser mm-hmm. um, and you need to be pretty accurate, I imagine. Yeah. Things so are the, moving pretty fast up there. One of the, well, one of the biggest challenges is because light is sort of diffracted differently by different layers of the atmosphere, you need to have two lasers where one, one's called a guide star. You have a, a smaller laser that you use to measure what the characteristics of the atmosphere are. Um, and you use some adaptive optics, which are sort of beyond my understanding, to to basically correct the flight path of your laser so you can intercept the object in space. Hmm. So there's some really interesting, uh, as I understand a lot of maths, to, um, to work out how to shoot a laser from Earth through the atmosphere is the challenging part um, yeah. at an object in space. Um, would you like to talk us through that mathematics? I would not. <laughs> Um, it is, uh, it's past my understanding. So the Space Environment Research Centre are the guys doing this. They operate up, up at Mount Stromlo and they have a, a research centre up there. So that, that's their main area of research is to look at space situational awareness and also how to treat the problem of space debris, in this instance, using lasers. What happens if the laser fired out of Mount Stromlo in Australia hits something it's not meant to hit? Like we don't hit the piece of debris, we hit an actual functional satellite launched by another country, let's say country A? Mm, great question. 
I guess if we're if we're going to think about that, we sort of and this I think is more your area of interest than mine. Is I think it is the Space Liability Convention. Is that right? Yeah. So the Outer Space Treaty establishes liability, but then there's the actual Liability Convention that um, expands that and goes into a lot more detail on it. Yeah. So as I understand it, the basic premise is that you should be very careful not to do that. Um, <laughs> That's a, that's a great principle of international law Excellent. right there. I'm glad, I'm glad I got that right. And if you did hit that thing, you'd want to hope that your diplomatic envoys could smooth things over pretty quickly. Yeah, or that your insurance was good. Yeah, that um, too. I'm, I'm looking forward to us having, I guess, a more robust system of space insurance. And hopefully that makes yeah. the, the liability question a little bit more practical to resolve. Yes, although can you really insure against... Like, you can insure against blowing up someone's satellite and needing to replace that satellite. But you can't really ensure against the political damage that's done in that case. No, absolutely. Okay, so I want to talk about space weaponization and space militarization. Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of discussion recently about space as a warfighting domain. Mm -hmm. And people have said, well, space is militarized but space is not weaponized, and that there's a very important distinction there. So what's your view on um, on the distinction between those two things? I'm certainly no expert. It feels a little bit like a distinction without a difference. So what's a weapon in space is kind of a tricky question. Sure. Um, and I think we talked about this in Germany, where sort of any, anything's a weapon in space if you employ it as a weapon, um, which is not a, not a fact that's unique to space. Like if you pick up a rock, then, then that can be a weapon. Um, that's usually not. So I don't think that's a, a particular unique aspect of the domain. I feel like when when this gets discussed, it's often in the context of Space Force, right? Mm. And this is has been a topic of, of discussion in your podcast before, I recall. So why I think that's interesting is because the, the Space Force proposal was pretty explicit about how the United States considers space as a warfighting domain, which is, is not a unique or a new way of thinking about things. For people who aren't as across these things, when you say it's not a unique or a new way of thinking about things, so space as a warfighting domain, is that something that has a long history? Uh, not a long history in terms of how long people have been thinking about uh, military strategy, mm. uh, but I guess a long history in terms of how people have been thinking about space. Space has always, since humans have been doing stuff in space, it's been a domain of, of national security consequences. And that okay. was the whole point of Sputnik, which was obviously the first human-made object in space, um, was a, a statement of intent and sort of establish... Uh, the Soviet Union sort of used it to establish some norms. And, um, and th I guess there's some conjecture about uh, whether the United States sort of allowed that to happen or, or whatever the point is. Um, that that is a was an action with national security and political ramifications, and it, mm. it was done for those reasons, right? So space has always been a domain that has been about the exercise of political influence, which is really what we mean when we talk about war fighting, because you know the the original scholars of military theory tell us that war is politics continued by other means. I think at one point I had a discussion with you about this, and you were talking about the levels of war. So war being sort of on a scale. Oh, sure. So this is sort of a, uh, it comes from uh, some American doctrine, which is in the public domain, 
the important part about that was what we think of as phase zero Mm. of conflict, which is basically the situation we're in right now where our national military and strategic efforts, I guess, are focused on shaping the environment so that if a conflict were to happen, the conditions for it are favourable to us. Sure. That's the, that's the key part there, and how we use and how we think about space has a, has a role to play in that. It's an international law question as well. So the norms we set and the boundaries we, we create as a nation are, are part of that sort of phase zero way of thinking about things. Mm. Um, so, and that's, that's what strategy is, right? Strategy is about not achieving an end state. Strategy is about creating the environment for consistent advantage. Okay. So on the question of militarization versus weaponization, from a space law perspective, it's a really important distinction because basically the militarization of space is accepted. And that's the idea that you can facilitate your war fighting on Earth by using space assets to make it easier. So militarization is something that is generally accepted under international law as being fine but weaponization is what the outer space treaty actually explicitly tried to prevent they were really worried about nuclear weapons and weapons of mass destruction being placed into orbit or um, on celestial bodies and they were worried about um, i guess the concerns at that time around people claiming territory and asserting sovereignty over things like the moon. So space weaponization, the distinction there would be that you're you're putting weaponry into space in order to fight war more efficiently by using weapons that are in space. Yep. Either weapon to weapon or, or um, weapon to target in space. So firing something like a really powerful laser at another satellite in space and thereby destroying it. Or you could also think about it in terms of anti-satellite technologies. Now, under international law, anti-satellite tests and so on are allowed. There are guidelines about doing it more or less well that have been established, mostly to do with preventing cascading debris problems. Mm -hmm. But it's still pretty accepted that you don't put nukes in space. Yep. So I guess the concern is that if you start talking about space as a warfighting domain then it makes it more acceptable to, um, to put a nuke in space and that people don't really like that idea. Yeah, and I, I think there are some, uh, some good and fairly obvious reasons for, to think that that's not a good idea. So it's a little bit uh, like the question of thought collectives. So in the, in the National Security Thought Collective, when we are talking about warfighting domains, that is a... I guess a practical piece of jargon that we use yep. because we think of uh, the land and the sea and the air and cyberspace as, as other warfighting domains. Mm. And what that is, is a way for uh, us as a profession to, I guess, sort of characterise the attributes of the domain. When, when we think about it as practitioners, I, I, or the way I think about it is, there's not a values assessment attached to the use of that term. Mm. It's just a way of... It's, a, it's a, an intellectual shorthand way for talking about the characteristics of it that are unique and, and that are worth thinking about. That's, of course, very different to how you conduct 
international politics and international law. Um, and that's part of what I think is uh, controversial about the Space Force is that by having an organisation that is explicitly set up to perform that mission, that kind of erodes this idea of not weaponizing space. Mm. Although that might make sense from the point of view of, uh, I guess, managing capability in space, like from the point of view of, of driving satellites around and designing new ones and doing, doing the business, maybe it makes sense to have an organization separate from Air Force, I don't know. But from the point of view of how that message is transmitted to the international community, that's a really different question than capability management, mm. which is a, a different part of the, of the strategic enterprise, I guess. Right. So, I mean, essentially what you're saying is that there's an issue of translation, which is that warfighting domain, in scare quotes, is used with a particular meaning in mind, which has a technical application and is used within a, uh, a group of people That's where right. it is understood in a particular way. Whereas when that word gets quoted in a newspaper article or um, enters discourse among international lawyers or even people who focus on diplomacy and so on, it takes on a, a different meaning and maybe interpreted in a different way. That's right, yeah. And again, I'm not trying to in, imply a values judgment about the fact that that happens. Mm. Um, but I think to, to really have a a smart conversation about it. We need to understand where the term comes from and and for whom that it, that term represents jargon and and what it means to those people and what it means to the to the layperson and to other sort of people in in professions that touch on it. I think that's something that's actually really missing from discourse on this stuff. So something that scientists get annoyed about is the fact that when you translate a scientific study into a newspaper headline, it comes out with something like eating six eggs a day will cure cancer. Right. Which is actually not true when you go back and you read the, the paper and what it's really doing. It very rarely bears any resemblance to the reality. The difference is with science that there are people running around being science communicators That's trying right. to There's educate people about it. There's a whole profession associated with doing that translation. Yeah. Whereas with military stuff, there's a lot more emphasis on classified information and secrecy and levels of authority, having access to different information for different reasons. And to my knowledge, there aren't very many people um, going around trying to translate that for the layperson. I've never, yeah, I've never heard of a, of a military communicator who's, who's translating jargon into, into more appropriate newspaper headlines. Perhaps there's a career for you there, Ben. Maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> but let's talk about space weapons for a minute as an actual thing, because yeah. this is something I know a little bit about from reading some stuff on um, capabilities and what's possible in space. And we've touched on this before when we've, we've talked about these things, but it would be great to get a sense from you about what's actually possible, what exists um, that can be spoken about and, and all of that stuff. Sure. Um, so I guess everyone's sort of broadly aware of some anti-satellite weapons tests um, that both the United States and China have done. Um, yeah, and, and just to just to pause for a second on that, anti-satellite weapons test, to communicate that into everyday jargon, mm -hmm. basically we're talking, and correct me if I'm wrong, but we're talking about missiles that you launch into space and blow something up, is that's that right? That's right, we're talking about shooting a missile at a satellite in space um, yep. and exploding it. 
Okay, and so China did this in 2007 with one of their defunct Feng Yun weather satellites uh-huh. and created, now, what was it, roughly about between three and 4,000 pieces of trackable debris? Lots. Lots of debris. And then, was it just after? Remind me, but the US did a Relatively did a test. shortly after, yeah. The United States did a similar test. I'm pretty sure it may have been the following year, actually. Yeah. yeah the US um, did a, a similar one. Was it called Burnt Frost? I cannot remember the, 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 the code name, yeah. Um, so the way we yeah. might characterise that, um, that type of weapon is a kinetic, non-reversible effect. So, so what that means is we, you can, something can be kinetic or non-kinetic. So it's kinetic because it is a physical object moving from, from one place to another to impact something mm-hmm. um, and, and cause an effect that way. And it's non-reversible because a satellite, once having been blown up, can't be very readily put back together. Because a, a weapon is a means by which to achieve a military effect, right? Mm-hmm. Where the effect in this example is blowing up a satellite and you don't just blow up a satellite for the fun of it. You do it to create a particular effect for a military purpose. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's how we would sort of consider that. So another type of weapon might be a non-kinetic reversible effect, which creates obviously creates a different kind of effect. So maybe you can shoot a laser at an imaging satellite and so that sensor is getting overwhelmed by all the laser energy sort of going into it onto the onto the detector so it can't image anything on the ground while it's being uh, while the, while you're shining the laser into the lens right mm-hmm. but as soon as you switch the laser off the effect stops uh, and the the effect is not damaged presumably yep so that's a, that's a different kind of effect with different consequences and so it's it's useful to I guess break things down into these different categories of what's reversible or not and what's kinetic or not and right. often kinetic things are non-reversible so it's kind of a that's very much the blunt instrument end of the of the spectrum mm-hmm. um, and as you sort of start to think about from a strategic point of view what effect you want to have when you're choosing a weapon those are the sorts of things that you would hypothetically consider is what's the what's the most appropriate tool for the effect I want to achieve so another um, another example of a non-kinetic reversible effect would be something like jamming that's exactly so right. jamming yep. communications or uh-huh. jamming um, geolocational signals that's right yeah and that could have significant effects absolutely so we saw um, a we saw this in uh, in Scandinavia recently a NATO exercise was happening in I think it was Norway so GPS jamming significantly disrupted this exercise so the country that's that's out there choosing a uh, a reversible effect is nonetheless having um, an impact that is sending a message and having an impact on something um, you can you can turn it off anytime you want but yet yeah, it's it's a weapon just the same Sure. And for things like navigation, naval navigation, for example, that would have a significant impact. Like if if your um, GPS, just as an example of your geolocational abilities, was jammed, you'd need to be able to pretty quickly resort to pre-space ways of getting around and knowing where you are. That's right. So you're using something like uh, an inertial navigation system that measures acceleration to, to te- and, and it has a start point to tell you where you are, mm-hmm. or you're using astro navigation to 
to look at the stars and, and work it out that way. Or you're driving up and down the coast with a, with a chart and looking at stuff on the land and using that to figure out where you are. And that really degrades how effective you can be um, because of how much stuff is dependent on having really accurate timing and position information, which you can only really get from GPS. And it also means you have to deploy a lot more of your capabilities and energy towards just figuring out where you are. That's right. Whereas otherwise you could be using those people to do other stuff. Exactly. Yeah. I read a really interesting book recently by um, Professor Everett Dolman called Can Science End War? Have you read it? I have not. It's a really interesting book. And he was talking about all these different types of reversible weaponry and basically pointing out that just because it's more uh, technologically developed than a kinetic weapon doesn't mean that it's any less effective. That's right. Um, or causes any less disruption. Go going back to our example of anti-satellite capabilities, if someone launches a missile and blows up your satellite, the response to that would be that you need to launch another satellite pretty quickly to take the place of the one that was just destroyed to um, do whatever you need to do. So that's something that you can do if you've got the right processes in place with a relative speediness. That's right. And presuming that the debris cloud has moved on and so on, you're able to position that new satellite. If someone has um, a laser technology, to use your example, basically blocking all the sensors on a constellation of your satellites, then launching another satellite is not going to be very effective because presumably they've got very good space situational awareness capability and they know that you've just launched another satellite and they're able to lock onto that one as well. That's right. So the point of this book was basically, spoiler alert, science can't end war because... I suspected that that just, would be the answer. Would you believe? Um, but it, it just makes it more complex. Yeah. And it's sort of from a, I guess, from an international relations point of view, it's much more of a gray area of if you're, you know, if you're using lasers to dazzle imaging satellites that are flying over your territory just while they're there. Um, and then it's, you know, the moment passes and the, the satellite's unaffected. That's a much different question in terms of international relations than shooting down a satellite. Yep. And it's, it's much easier to, um, I think, to sort of to go down that path than to than to blow things up and I, th I think more broadly it's kind of tricky to imagine a circumstance where um where it makes sense to resort to actually blowing stuff up in space like a, a kinetic non-reversible weapon to use your terminology is a symbolic indicator that that person really wants to pick a fight with you but a reversible non-kinetic weapon such as a, a laser that dazzles something or a bit of jamming going on is not as clear a symbolic indicator that someone wants to pick a fight. So in fact, the escalation could happen a lot more slowly over a longer period of time, but nonetheless reach a point where effectively you're at war. Is that an is that a way of looking at it? I'd say that's a pretty fair characterisation. It sort of, it begets more complexity, right? Because if you are the nation that's getting jammed, or getting dazzled, then you have to make a decision about whether you want to admit that, you know, what the other person's doing to you is being effective or not. Um, you know, it may not be as simple as saying, hey, stop doing this. You, you might not want to admit that this, is, um, that this is actually having an effect, 
and maybe it's not having an effect. It becomes greyer and greyer sort of the more, the more complex it gets. Yes, so it could actually be a really difficult decision about whether or not to escalate something or to respond in kind. That's right. Um, and I find when I talk to people, a lot of the time they're talking about um, proportionate force. Yeah. So you, ex you um, enact a proportionate response to what's happening. So does proportionate mean um, they're dazzling your satellite so you dazzle theirs? Or does proportionate mean that they're doing GPS jamming so you enact trade sanctions? Really interesting question because proportionality is one of the central tenets of the law of armed conflict. It's, yeah, it's essential to consider when you're thinking about what you're doing in war. So what does proportional mean when someone is jamming GPS and it means that people start to starve in Australia because fuel tankers won't come here because GPS is being jammed so they can't arrive here safely. So there's no fuel in Australia anymore because the tankers can't get here from Singapore. What's, what's then proportional when Australia has no fuel, when that's the effect? Um, but it's just caused by some RF energy being emanated somewhere and being received somewhere else. So figuring out what's proportional there is, um, is a tricky question. Mm. Something I think I've, I've talked to you about before, but not on the podcast, was this question of when war is declared. So there's the question of when war is declared. There's also a question of when a war starts. To my mind, the question of when a war starts can only really be determined in retrospect. That's right, yeah. Because you have incidents like the Cosmos Iridium collision, and that was 2009. You can imagine that if that had happened in the height of the Cold War, the reaction to that would have been significantly different to what it was in 2009. You'd think so, yeah. Something I think about quite a lot is when the next war will begin and what it will begin over and when we will know that we have begun. When you don't have things being blown up, how do you know that you're at war? Yeah, well, to take it back to this this question of like, what is, what is phase zero, right? Mm. So. Does, does war start before or after phase zero? Like, according to the doctrine, it's, it's after. Once a war starts, you've moved from phase zero into phase one. But I mean, that way of thinking about things might not continue to make sense in the future because fighting wars in the physical domain, maybe that doesn't make sense economically anymore. Maybe we're fighting wars in information domains, like in, in cyber and in space. Yeah, and you see that with um, all sorts of hacking going on between countries at the moment. Accusations of various countries interfering in other countries' election processes by using cyber warfare. You can choose to call it cyber warfare. You could also just call it sort of rogue hackers or whatever you want to call it. But what you actually call it has a huge impact on the way that you view it. Absolutely, yeah. And I guess the way that we as people think about war has its roots in the, in the 20th century and what war looked like then. Mm. And that maybe isn't how we're going to do war in the 21st century. If, if we're still going to call it that, like maybe war is a thing of the past because we're going to call it something else because it's in, it's in cyberspace. Yeah, maybe it's no longer war, it's just strategic manoeuvring. Right, that's it. Ben, it's been fantastic talking to you. Thank you so much for making the time and um, giving us your valuable insight into all things to do with space security. Thank you so much for the, for the opportunity to be on the podcast again. You're very welcome, anytime. Thanks, Annie. Thank you for listening to Space Junk. 
If you'd like to find out more about anything in this podcast, you can tweet me on at ahandmer. That's at A-H-A-N-D-M-E-R. Thanks for listening.